Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word and for your spirit. We thank you that what you have given us, uh, as in the, the story that Doug and Jeannie shared, every bit of growth is brought about because your word is sown and your spirit brings growth and a response. And so I ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, to rejoice in what we hear and what we see Jesus say, as difficult as it is, and to understand the, the positive side of how we are to live. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious, wonderful name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. In this chapter, Jesus pronounces judgment against the scribes and Pharisees. We have now uh, spoken about a number of these. This is the fourth of seven woes, or the fifth of eight woes. If you have a New King James, King James, or a New American Standard, your Bible will contain Matthew 23, 14. If you have a different translation, 23.14 will not be there. When I preached on 23.14, I explained that in, in a fair amount of detail. I encourage you to grab that sermon. Uh, I will say this, 23.14, the words there were spoken by Jesus in Mark and Luke. Uh, Matthew didn't record them, but Jesus did speak them. So we, can, we dealt with them on that basis. On social media, I, I frequently see people expressing a desire that, that uh, we be like Jesus, at least that other people be like Jesus. And maybe you know which Jesus they mean. It's the kind, gentle, non-judgmental, accepting of everyone, love is love, all you need is love Jesus. It's that Jesus. It's the I prefer, Paul, or I, I prefer Jesus to Paul Jesus. It's the the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, Jesus. It's that Jesus. But that's not the Jesus that we have in Scripture. That's not the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible says in Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. Lawlessness, by the way, is disobedience to and disregarding the law of God. The Jesus of the Bible says that one day he will say to the wicked, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the Jesus who is. That's the Jesus that we have to face and deal with. Uh, Paul uses the phrasing in 1 Corinthians, I believe, that is the God with whom we must do. That's the God we have to deal with. We don't get to redefine him. 
The gentle Jesus who loves his children and cares for them tenderly is the same Jesus who condemns sin and warns sinners of judgment. He reveals the, the reality of eternal and inescapable hell. There are three reasons that Jesus pronounces these judgments on the Pharisees and the scribes. The first is that these men really existed. They really committed these sins. They existed in time and space and history. They were actually facing his judgment. He's not speaking theoretically. He's not speaking hypothetically. These men had wives and children and families they went about their daily lives convinced that they were right with God because they followed their traditions. The second reason Jesus, reason Jesus does this is so that his disciples, and that begins with the 12 and it continues to us today and all believers alive today, would understand that God sees through every pretense of human religion and human goodness. We can fool each other, but we cannot fool him. There's no point in trying. And third... Jesus speaks these words because the gospel is not the gospel if we do not warn the lost of the reality of judgment and the reality of hell. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, which is really the first sermon of the church, preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, Luke brings it to a close by saying, With many other words, Peter solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, Be saved from this crooked generation. So the, the message of the early church, with apologies to Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade, the message was not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's God is holy. He created all things for his glory. Mankind has sinned and is under the judgment of God. And God commands that all people everywhere now repent. And to this he is borne witness by raising a man from the dead, Jesus Christ. And if you'll trust Jesus, he will save you. Not if you know every bit of theology that, that there is. Not if you have the whole Bible memorized. Not if you can explain every theological viewpoint in detail. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the gospel. But we have to explain what it is we're saved from. So I'll remind you again, and I'll remind you as we continue through these woes in the weeks to come, Christians will never face God's judgment. We will never receive these woes because Jesus bore it for us. He took our place. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, was punished for our peace, and that by his wounds we are healed. That's accomplished for us. So earlier during the confession time, we, we've kind of flipped that on its head. For a number of weeks we had confession before propitiation. We had come and confess your sin, and then we'll reassure you of forgiveness. But as believers, we're assured of forgiveness. And that's why we confess. We don't come in a vain hope. We don't come merely hoping that he'll forgive us again. We come with the assurance that we're forgiven. That the awful, terrible truth is that unrepentant, unbelieving sinners who live lawlessly, who live in disregard and disobedience to the law of God, will bear their own griefs and sorrows and piercings and torments and punishments and wounds. Jesus came to save us from that. But the unbelieving and unrepentant will receive that judgment in full. So Jesus pronounces judgment against these men. 
we're looking at the, the specific reasons in, in each one of these passages. Uh, he begins today by describing this condemning obsession that they had. had. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now tithing is biblical. God commands tithing in very basic terms in the law of God and the scriptures. He commands his people to give 10% of their annual increase. Whatever you gain, you give 10% of. Whether that was a a harvest of, of grains or something, whether it was livestock whether it was money, you give 10%. That was his design as he reveals in the Old Testament. What he doesn't say in the Old Testament is tithe on the herbs in your garden. Tithe on every last thing that you get. If your chicken lays 10 eggs, make sure you give one of them. He doesn't go to that kind of detail. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were meticulous about that. They weren't farmers. They weren't stock, uh, stocksmen. They were tithing on the herbs that they gathered in their own gardens and that they used in their own cooking. And Jesus describes it, mint and dill and cumin. I found an, uh, an ancient recipe for chicken. It's a 2,000-year-old recipe. A man named Apicius, a Roman named Apicius, created a cookbook. <coughs> And this is his recipe for chicken with cumin sauce calls for a marinade made with olive oil, which they would have had to buy, almost certainly, um, cumin, dill, coriander, and garlic, all of which they would have grown, and black pepper and salt, which they probably would have bought. Black pepper would have come from Asia, which was not grown in the Middle East at that time. Salt would have come from somebody else. Uh, in the recipe, you cut up the chicken, you marinate it for 30 minutes, and then you fry it in oil. We did this Friday night. It was actually really good. It was good. So the Pharisee comes along. He's going to make a peach's chicken with, uh, with cumin sauce, and he, he sees he needs dill, so he goes out into his garden, and he strips the leaves off of a, a, a strand of dill, and he's got a little bit. Now, I called Linda Friday. And she did this for me. Our kitchen scale, digital scale, will measure to the gram. And I had her get a level teaspoon of dill and weigh it. And it doesn't weigh anything. It obviously does, but it doesn't weigh as much as a gram. It didn't even register. So these men are tithing on something that we can't weigh in our time with typical household utensils. There are obviously scales that can weigh that. The scales that they used in the first century were balanced scales, right? You had a, a central beam and then the two things and the plates, and you would put things on them and wait till they were even. Balanced scales did not get to this level of precision. The smallest Roman coin, called a quadrants, was one-sixteenth of a denarius. The quadrants that we have found weigh anywhere from 1.5 grams to 4 grams. That's the difference in the weight of those coins. That's a huge difference. The difference in the weight between the smallest and the largest is more than the smallest. That's a huge variation. Why didn't they get more exact? Because their technology wouldn't allow it. They couldn't be more exact than, than three or four or five grams. But these Pharisees are going to tithe. So this, this man goes out to his garden. He strips off some dill weed. He gets it in the palm of his hand, and before he puts it in 
in his bowl, he, he separates out a tenth of it. He had to do it by sight. I suppose if, I hadn't thought about this, I suppose if they used dill seed, he could have counted the seeds. Don't think they wouldn't have. Now what does he do with it then? He dumps the 90% into the bowl. What does he do with that tenth? Does he set it aside and, and give it later? Or does he just get all of these for the, the mint and the dill and the cumin and all of that and toddle down to the storehouse and give to the storehouse amounts that you can't use, that are insufficient to use in cooking? You need a teaspoon. And he's given a tenth of a teaspoon. And he walks home confident that he has done right, confident that he has obeyed God confident that he has demonstrated his righteousness. So Jesus pronounces the judgment on them because he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He actually gives us a little wordplay with that. You've got... This, this amount of herb that you can't even weigh using your technology. And you treat it as though it's the most valuable substance on the face of the earth. But justice and mercy and faithfulness are massive. They're mountain-sized. And you act like they don't exist. You ignore those. There's a reason for that. Anybody on the face of the earth can tithe on dill. Anybody can take a pinch out of a teaspoon and drop it into somebody else's hand. But it takes new birth. It takes a work of God for us to exercise justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those things determine your eternal destiny. And that's why Jesus pronounces this condemnation on them. Now I believe that Jesus was citing Micah chapter 6. Micah 6, 8 of course is really well known. We could probably all stand and sing the chorus. He has shown thee, O oh man, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Probably one of the first Christmas, uh, Christmas. one of the first Christian choruses I learned as a new Christian in our little church and our little youth group. Well, in Micah chapter 6 and verses 6, 7, and 8, and verses 6 and 7, Micah kind of describes this, this hypothetical Israelite, this theoretical man, asking a really good, important question. With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high. How do I come before God in a way that he will accept my worship? Job asks the same question. How can a man be right before God? It's a good question. And the man has some suggestions. He offers some things. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Is Yahweh pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my, my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Uh, shall I give my oldest child as a burnt offering to be accepted by God? 
In other words, God loves stuff. All gods love stuff. Gods just want stuff. Yahweh is a God. He wants stuff. What stuff does Yahweh want? And how much? How much? And Micah just seems to shake his head. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. He told you in his word. You don't need to ask this. You don't need to go to these dramatic lengths, all this ridiculous uh, exaggeration, thousands of this and ten thousand of that. He's told you. And this is what he said. What, is, what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love loving kindness? See, the song says mercy because mercy scans really well when we're singing it, but the Hebrew word is chesed, which is a vast, wonderful, lovely, beautiful word. And mercy is just too small as a single translation. To love loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's the summary of the law of God. God requires that we do justice that we love loving kindness and we walk humbly with him. The sacrifices come into play because we fail to do that. We fail to live justly. We fail to love loving kindness. We fail to walk humbly with him. And when we do that, there has to be an acknowledgement of our failure. And so we bring a sacrifice. So they, they would bring the animal to the priest. They would repent of their sins. They would confess their sins while they laid their hand on the head of the animal. They're transferring their sins to the animal in a sense. But they're also saying, I know and I agree that God requires my life for my sin. But he has said that he will accept the life of this animal in my place. And so I ordain this animal to die in my place and the priest would slay the animal instead of them and then he would offer the animal on the altar now this is really important god did not require animal sacrifices to come before him he required justice loving kindness and mercy when he comes to see adam and eve there's no death before they've fallen. They heard the sound of him after their fall. They heard the sound of him walking in the garden. They recognized the sound of him walking in the garden, which means he'd been there before they fell. When he came before they fell, they didn't kill something. It wasn't necessary. The sacrifices have to be offered because of our failure. That covers the sin at that time, those animal sacrifices, and it cleared the guilt of the offer, which opened the door for that man or woman to worship injustice, loving kindness, and humility. In our day, we don't come with a sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice. We still come with repentance. We still come with confession. If you will, laying our hand on the head of Christ and saying, here's my sacrifice. At the end of verse 7, as this, this hypothetical Israelite is, is building up, he says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. We don't offer the life of our firstborn for our sins. Because, do you see this? Because God offered the life of his firstborn for our sins. So let no one ever say that God does not love sinners. People say that to you, 
show them Christ. So the sin of the Pharisees and the scribes, like the hypothetical man in, in Micah 6, they want to please God. They think that God will only be pleased with stuff. But it's worse than Micah 6. At least the guy in Micah 6 says, well, he's Yahweh, he's God, he's the one true God, so it's got to be thousands of rams. It's got to be 10,000 rivers of oil. It's got to be the life of my firstborn. It's got to be something so far beyond my ability to give. Because after all, he's God. But the Pharisees say, I must bring stuff to God. That's enough. And if there's a gust of wind in their kitchen, it's on the floor. Jesus in verse 24 of Matthew 6 calls them blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. In the Old Testament, there's a description of unclean animals of various kinds. The smallest was a gnat, a tiny little fly, the little noceum that nibbles on you when you're out in your backyard. The largest was a camel. So he literally describes the tiniest to the, to the largest unclean animal. Uh, wine and water and oil were in pots, clay pots. They'd have lids on them, but bugs could get in. And so they wouldn't just drink straight out of that. They would scoop with a ladle, perhaps, or something, and they would run it through cloth, and they would filter it. They would strain out the gnats, just like anybody reasonable would do. But picture in your mind, and for, for people who are oral and picture-oriented, you could paint this picture. Picture in your mind the man straining out the net and then drinking, and as he's swallowing, he is swallowing an entire camel. That's these men with their sin. That's these men with their so-called righteousness. You're so focused on this tiny little thing, you're missing what's actually massive. You're missing what God actually requires. And, and Jesus says, by the way, uh, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say, don't tithe on mint. You want to tithe on mint, knock yourself out. But God doesn't require it. If you're achieving everything else and your devotion to God is such that you're going to tear off 10 mint leaves for cooking and offer one to God, if you're doing it in holiness and righteousness and love for him, I think that that would please him. But it's not a substitute. So they stood condemned. Well, how then shall we live? Well, he, Micah 6, 8 tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you, but to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We always have to define biblical terms biblically. Justice, loving kindness, and humility have to be defined biblically not by the spirit of our age, and especially justice in our time. Social justice has been twisted and perverted, and love has been twisted and perverted. So we must do justice. Biblical justice means treating every person according to the moral standard of God's word. Leviticus 19 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. The Supreme Court just overturned affirmative action. Affirmative action says there's injustice. This person is being oppressed, and this person is privileged. We're going to create justice. 
we're going to give privilege to the oppressed person and we're going to oppress the privileged person, and that's just. The Bible says, no, that's just another form of injustice. Elevate everybody. Elevate everybody. We don't need to argue about whether there was a need for affirmative action. I think that in many places there probably was, but the way that they handled it was simply to reverse the prejudice. James says, if, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, the law being you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Being convicted by the law as transgressors. So we're not to show any kind of partiality to anyone for any reason. God commands just and, and equal equitable treatment. So Proverbs speaks hugely to this. We must care rightly for orphans and widows, use honest weights and measures, be truthful, hear both sides before coming to a conclusion, act according to truth, speak for those who can't speak for themselves, judge according to truth rather than appearances, and so on. Proverbs is full of this stuff. We must love loving kindness. And I just, I just wish we had till 2 o'clock because there's so much to say about this. The Hebrew word loving kindness covers a huge amount of what's called semantic territory, related words. It includes love, grace, kindness, goodness, favor, mercy, benevolence, loyalty, devotion, faithfulness, and it just goes on. It, it really means any good and kind tendency from God is included in loving kindness. So we are to love loving kindness. That means that we are to love the loving kindness that God has shown us. We are to love the loving kindness that he shows others. And we are to love being able through Christ to show loving kindness to others. But we can only do this by the Spirit of God. Any person on the face of the earth, you could bring any one of them up, and unless they're in a vegetative state, they can, they can tithe on dill. But you have to be in Christ, and you have to have a certain level of maturity in Christ to love loving kindness, to love your enemies, to pray for those who despitefully use you. We will only be able to do that if we're in Christ. And even in Christ, we will only be able to show loving kindness to others if we're aware of how greatly God has given us his loving kindness. We tend to think maybe that, that when we're saved, we come to a full and, and unhindered, undiluted awareness of our sin. And then we, we begin growing from there. And the truth is, when we're saved... We, we pass through a door and we begin to acknowledge, at least in theoretical ideas, our sin. And as we grow in Christ, our sin becomes more and more apparent. And so many Christians feel like they're declining because we become more and more aware of our sin and more, insensitive to, more, insen more sensitive to our sin. The reality is, is our sin has always been there and in Christ it's diminished, but we become more sensitive to it. But when that happens, the loving kindness of God moves in the opposite direction and we realize how gracious he is, how loving he is, how favorable he is, how much he's granted us by his mercy and by his kindness. How many sins will you have committed by the end of your life? Well, the computer doesn't exist that can count them. But if you're in Christ, how many sins remain against your account? None. None. Zero. Zip. Zip. Nada. 
Zilch. Jesus paid it all. So God loves justice, and God does justice. And in justice, God poured out his eternal wrath on his son instead of on you. He's not a God who doesn't care about sin and unrighteousness. The, the God of Islam forgives for no reason in particular. He just shrugs and says, oh, okay, I'll forgive you. I'm not going to forgive you. And there's no particular reason. It's just a personal choice. The God who is says, sin and rebellion has to be addressed. It has to be punished. It falls under his wrath. He doesn't just blink away his wrath, so he poured it out on Jesus Christ. And God loves loving kindness. And so for those who are in Christ, he has poured out his loving kindness on them granting them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And of course, his loving kindness is why he poured out his wrath on Christ for us. And so in Jesus, we have received his love and his grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and favor and loyalty and devotion and faithfulness and all the rest. All the rest. I'm always suspicious when people say, here's the key to spiritual maturity. So that being said, here's the key to spiritual maturity. It's to love the loving kindness of God. The more we love his loving kindness toward us, the more we're enabled to exercise that loving kindness toward others. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We don't get there by ignoring our sin and by pretending that we're good and we're doing a favor for bad people. We get there by acknowledging our sin and acknowledging the riches of God's love that have been poured out upon us that then empower us to love others. There's three cautions that we need to have in mind with loving kindness. The first is that it does not mean defending sin. Uh, there, there are many in our time who would say, if you love somebody, you'll agree with whatever they do. And loving kindness doesn't do that. Loving kindness, uh, along with that, doesn't protest God's judgment of the wicked because our greatest love is for him. Our devotion is to him first and foremost. The second, loving kindness does not mean pretending that somebody is a beloved friend. It means treating them as if they're a beloved friend doesn't mean pretending everything's okay. It means treating somebody as if everybody's okay. And third, loving kindness is not blind to the harm that we suffer from others. It doesn't pretend that others have not hurt us. But loving kindness dispenses with bitter resentment against others and replaces it with grief for the judgment that they face. Jesus is jealous for his people. He loves his people. We have our little family squabbles. We do that. And, and it says in Ezekiel 34, he says, I, I, I know the difference between sheep and sheep. He, he, he knows how to deal with you and I when we're not right with each other without destroying anybody. But Jesus is jealous for his people. And when his people suffer at the hands of the world, the world faces eternal judgment for that. The people who've brought harm into your life, 
who are not believers will one day stand before him and pay eternally for what they've done to you. In, in immaturity, and perhaps many of us have been there at times, in immaturity, we kind of like that idea. They're going to get it. But spiritual maturity recognizes that they face his judgment, and it agrees with it, and it grieves for them. It doesn't argue against his judgment, but it grieves for what they're going to suffer. And then third, we must walk humbly with our God. The word translated humbly has the sense of living with purity and care and submission. So walking humbly with our God means living in purity according to his word, being careful about our lives and our words and our attitudes, and submitting to him in every matter. And ultimately, walking humbly with God means living in awareness of both his justice and his loving kindness that we love. So I am walking humbly with my God when I agree with his justice, when I agree with his righteous condemnation of me, for instance. I recognize that I was born a child of wrath, dead in sin, under his judgment. I was capable of nothing that pleased him. I was capable of anything that earned his wrath. But that for the sake of his love, he has saved me. In spite of that, God was justified and holy when he condemned me for my sin. So I'm walking humbly with my God when I agree that I deserve his wrath, even today. Even today. He has not changed us inherently as Christians. We are saved and we continue to be saved by grace. I'm walking humbly with my God when I agree that I deserve his wrath and when I rejoice that he poured it out on his son instead of me. And I'm walking humbly with my God when I recognize that he has showered me with his loving kindness. His love, his favor, his benevolence, his kindness, his grace, his goodness, his mercy, his loyalty, his faithfulness, and infinitely more. And because of the loving kindness of God, I've been saved from every evil thing. I've been given every good thing. And I'm walking humbly with my God when I show his loving kindness or when I love his loving kindness toward me so much that I want nothing more than to show it to others. And of course, we can only do this in Christ, which is why we regularly come and say, I have not been just. I have not loved your loving kindness. I have not been humble with you. And we confess that because we have a sacrifice who has died once for all time. We're not hoping that he'll still forgive me. He'll still forgive us. We're wearing him out. He's getting tired of having to forgive us over and over and over for the same stupid stuff. We come to him and the confidence that Jesus has died, that we've been made the beneficiaries of his grace. Father, we thank you for what you have given us. We thank you for the for your justice. We thank you that you're holy, that you're righteous. If you weren't holy and righteous, there would be no hope at all that there will one day be life without sin, that there would one day be life without evil. We thank you that Jesus bore the, the cost of our sin against you and bore your wrath. 
I thank you, Jesus, for your loving kindness that was poured out upon us. That we've received the, the riches of grace <coughs> and your love and your favor and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the heavenly places. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you teach us our place. You teach us how to walk humbly with you in purity and in care and in submission. We fail in all of those things constantly. We thank you that you were faithful to continue to pick us up, clean us off, cleanse our conscience, and to teach us how to take the next step. We spent a lot of time learning how to take one step and falling. And then we take two steps and fall. And then three steps and fall. But you're faithful to continue to train us and to teach us. And we give you thanks for that. 